Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. This morning, we'll continue and complete the Sermon on the Mount with verses, I think it's, where are we? What verses are we in? 7 to 27. That's what we are, 7 to 27. We'll continue and complete the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And you'll remember where we were last week or the last time we met. Jesus gave the teaching, judge not that you be not judged. I remember that the emphasis there was not a judgment of evaluation and assessment, you know, trying to determine whether something is correct or not or whatever. It was a condemnation judgment. It was a criticalness, a criticism, something that was given in order to put someone down or put them in their place or bring some kind of a recognition that you were wrong. And that's a problem. And maybe you even should pay for it. So you remember we did that. Those of you who weren't here a couple of weeks ago for that CD, you know, can you always get the CDs or hear them on the, what do you call it, the podcast or whatever they are. So this morning, we continue with the words of Jesus as he explains how can we be that kind of people? How can we be the people who are not regularly judging? Now, I said this last time, and I repeat it today because it is true. I find myself too often too critical over too many issues. Now, maybe some of you don't, maybe none of you do, I don't know. And so, I need the work of the Holy Spirit in this area. I recognize that this is an area of weakness. It's an area of sin. It's an area that hurts not only the work of God in me, but it inflicts hurt on others. And so I have to do what Jesus talks about in the verses of 7 to 11. I have to do this in order to not be a person or at least in order to ask the Holy Spirit to begin to guard me and to alert me and to empower me not to be that kind of judgmental person. So let's see what Jesus says. What to do when you find and when the Holy Spirit reveals to you, that's judgment. You thought it was this, but God tells you the other way and just accept what he says. So Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Now, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? Father, we ask again this morning, always, continually, regularly crying out to you, Father, minister to us. Father, minister your cleansing, empowering word to us by your Holy Spirit. Father, work in our hearts today, this morning, Father, reveal to us by your Spirit areas of need, areas of weakness, areas of sin. And, Father, cause our hearts to cry out to you 
to receive and to ask for and to receive your power. And Father, when you begin to identify and cause us to be reminded in the midst of a sin, this is wrong, this is not me, this is you, this is flesh. Father, that when we hear that word of the Spirit, when we feel that tugging, when we sense your presence, Father, right in the middle of a sentence or right in the middle of an action, right in the middle of a thought, we will stop. We will stop. Submit to you. Confess our sin. Thank you for your power and agree with you. Father, would you minister this morning your word as you always do, which is your glory in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So you remember last time, in the previous verses, Jesus had warned his followers that they're not to be criticizing one another. They ought to be evaluating one another. Why? What is the purpose of asking, seeking, and knocking? In order to take the logs out of our own eyes so that the log that is in my eye as it is removed by the Spirit, first I can see with the discerning work of the Spirit my own issue. Every time there's a judgment against another or a criticism of another, I think it's every time, but at least mostly. When I feel something in my spirit about someone else or something else, you know, that irritates me. Anybody understand what I'm saying? That irritates me, that rubs me the wrong way, that, that rattles me, that, that grates against me, even a little bit. That saying, first, there's something awry in me. And so I must take the log out of my own eye by cooperating with the Holy Spirit. Then when God deals with what's wrong in me, then he may or may not use me to help identify and take the log or the speck, rather, out of the brother or sister's eye. Now, I have to fight for this regularly. I have to fight for this regularly. And so that's what Jesus is saying. So may I just take a moment to remind us? Well, let me ask you this. This week, as we can remember, did any of us get that critical feeling or attitude or whatever about anyone else or something else? Anybody had that this week? Anybody at all? See, I only have two hands to raise. Thank you, Charlie, for raising both hands. Andy wanted to raise his hands and his feet, but he'd fall out of his chair. And let's be this people. And I, have to, I want the Holy Spirit to remind me, and I want you to ask him to do that for me and for you. Father, what is this saying about my walk and trust of you? Because isn't that the major issue? Me. You remember the old song? It's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me. Oh. Anybody remember that? Nancy, how many, did you ever play that on the piano? How many times? Too many to remember. It's me. It's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. So what do we do? Ask, seek, and knock. And by telling us, ask, seek, and knock, 
you see that Jesus said, if you keep on asking, if you keep on seeking, if you keep on knocking, this is not a one-time activity. This is a continual activity of our hearts and our minds seeking the ministry and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, not only in this area, but in any area of sin, but specifically this area in context. And so our lives are to be seeking, asking, and knocking, praying without ceasing. You know, Phil just came in here, and Gene and I were privileged to go to his covenant group Friday night. I must say this about Phil Widener. He's smooth. He's smooth. He said, Peter, I'll be out of town. Won't be there for the Friday night. Might get in on on time. Not sure. But would you be willing to take the covenant? Okay, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll do that. So, you know, I prepared for hours and days and months. Put everything else off the calendar. <laughs> Thank you for shaking your head no. Cynthia's right on. Uh, no, you didn't. And, uh, and you weren't even there and you knew that. And I hope I get through the lesson today. But sometimes, you know, lessons are not only being a slave to notes. And so we went to the door and Liz came out. How you doing? Good to see you. And then this comes to the door. And I said, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. I said, you take the covenant group, we're going home. He wouldn't let me do that. <laughs> you caught an earlier plane. Is that what you said? That was the story that you gave me? That is my story. That is my song. <laughs> what I'm getting at is this. At the end of the covenant group meeting, Phil asked for prayer. Any prayer needs. And this struck me. It really struck me. It struck me. Okay, we'll, we'll pray for this person's need. We'll pray for that person's need. And Phil is writing them down one at a time. And I'm thinking, hey, that's great. He has a little prayer list he can pray for. Then what struck me was not that he just wrote them down. I've seen that before. But then in the group he says, now, Peter, would you pray for this? Gene, would you pray for this? And he goes all around the whole group. Everyone has a need to pray for. And we stayed until every need was prayed for by each of the people there. That struck me, brother. That struck me. <clears throat> this is how our life is to be. Constantly fellowshipping with our Heavenly Father. Now, this continual asking is not to infer a lack or any weakness in God. It is to identify and embrace with joy our own personal lack and weaknesses. How many of us know we have weaknesses? How many of us are filled with joy and embrace them? Just a few. But what does Paul say? When I am weak, then am I strong. Therefore, I am going to glory and give thanks for and rejoice in the weakness. Why? Because in my weakness is the power of God's grace demonstrated, correct? So let's change our attitude about these things and see them as the fertile soil of the grace of God to bloom in us the very garden of God himself. So it's not a weakness in God, it's in us. 
verse 12. Therefore, or so, whatever you wish that others should do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, and this is called what? The golden rule. I don't like that term, but that's what people think of. What's the golden rule? Whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you also to them. Okay, for this is the law and the prophets. What happens now in this verse is Jesus now summarizes the sermon. You remember, he began the sermon, if you would, after giving the blessed. This is the, these are the ones who are members of the kingdom, and this is what their lives will look like. Blessed are these, blessed, and so on. And so he gives eight blessed, with the, the last one being a kind of a recapitulation of the other. So you could call them nine, eight, whatever. Then he says in verse 17 of chapter 5, you know, the law and the prophets, do not think that I've come to abolish the law, but what? I have come to what? Fulfill all the law and the prophets. And so now he uses the same terminology in verse 12. He summarizes his sermon by the way he began it, with the use of the law and the prophets. So the sermon begins with that phrase, and the sermon ends with it. These are the bookends, if you would, of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. So as each one of us wants to be treated, how do you want to be treated? Could I ask, could I say this? I think everyone would agree. If I say something you don't agree with, please raise your hand. I want to be treated kindly. I want to be treated gently. I want to be treated forbearingly. I want to be treated lovingly. I want to be treated with God's grace with the fruit of the Spirit. Anyone have a problem with that? Isn't that, we want, isn't that what we want? And so Jesus says, what the way you want to be treated, do what? Then treat. Unless there's something very wrong with us as believers. We're talking to believers now. Jesus is not talking to the world. We're talking to those who have the Holy Spirit who have experienced the gift of eternal life, have tasted of the heavenly things. Remember what Hebrews says. And we want to be treated with the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the forbearance and the gentleness, et cetera, et cetera, of the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus said, that's the way you want to be treated, and he knows how we want to be treated because he knows that the Holy Spirit is in us, and he knows what the Holy Spirit has engendered in us as a desire. And therefore, Gordon, treat others that way. Treat others the way you have been treated. See, my problem is, so you didn't know pastors had so many problems. How many of you are just learning this? My problem is that I want my wife to understand me and have patience with me. Now, I know you know that that's a monumental work of the Holy Spirit for Gene to have that. But I am no as much inclined to treat her that way. Men, anybody, any of you men identify with that? How quickly do we get impatient and get upset and want to instruct and, and whatever? And yet when that happens to us, God forbid. And so this is a reciprocity. Love gives and love receives and love returns and et cetera, et cetera. 
as each of us wants to be treated without any criticism or condemnation, we are to treat others without such criticism and condemnation. Why? Because God himself has removed all of the condemnation from us at the cross. Therefore, to be critical, and it's the same issue, again, he continues it, to be critical, to be condemning of others is to infer that God made a mistake or was not just in removing all the criticism and the condemnation. God has removed all criticism and condemnation from us. What is the verse? God has removed all criticism and condemnation from us. What verse am I quoting? Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation, no criticism, no judgment, no casting down in us who are in Christ Jesus. So in essence, Jesus is saying, whatever you wish that others would do to you, how do you want others to treat you? You want others to treat us the way God treats us. And therefore, we are to love others with God's kind of love. We are to love others with the same kind of love. I don't normally say God's love or the love of God because often believers, even believers, don't get what that means. I just say God's kind of love, which I think puts it in a context a little more unique. That's just my way of doing it. We want others to treat me. I want others to treat me with God's kind of love. Therefore, I, as a man in whom the Holy Spirit lives, that means I'm a believer, and everyone in here who is a believer, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and therefore we are to treat one another with God's kind of love. And if you're not sure what that is, just read your Bible, but especially Galatians 5, 22 and 23. That's just part of it. Then read 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, shall we continue? Then read Paul's letter to the Philippians. Then read, <laughs> just keep on going, all the way back to Genesis 1-1. We have to get back there. We've got to mention that every time we preach. <laughs> you see, in this way, in loving one another as God loves us, with God's kind of love, in this way is the law and the prophets fulfilled. Because Paul said in Romans 13, 10, for love is the fulfilling of the law and the prophets. So you get Jesus' mean. You understand what he's saying here when he's tying it together with the phrase, the law and the prophets. This is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Why can Jesus say that? Because he himself is the summation and the fulfillment, which we'll find out in the sermon this morning, is the summation and the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets. What verse am I referring to? Luke 24, verse 40. Now, there's, there's another reference in the same one in verse 27, but that was one specific I was referring to. You see, Jesus has now concluded the Sermon on the Mount by explaining that the Torah, the Torah is the first five books of Moses, the books of the law. It is the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law, the whole thing, not just the Ten Commandments. And he has concluded his Sermon on the Mount by explaining that the Torah is fulfilled in himself 
and that he himself has done what Adam failed to do, therefore redeeming God's people as the second Adam and maintaining and continuing and saving, if you would, and redeeming God's purpose for humanity, that we might be the image of God, that we might be made in the image of God. You see, this means that the Torah, that the law and the prophets, the Ten Commandments, if you would, for us, means that the law, law was never, ever, 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 can we get this in our hearts, believers, the law was never meant as a way of salvation, but as the revelation of God's kind of love in saving us. That's what the law and the prophets are. It's not telling us how to be saved. It's telling us who we are to be and what God has done to make it happen. So when Paul says we're not under law, we're not under an obligation to try to make it happen. Our obligation, if you would, is to cooperate with him who has already made it happen so it can continue to be and progressively happening or manifesting in our lives by his spirit. Remember, Jesus fulfilled the law. How? In his perfect obedience, Jesus images the character of God. In his authoritative ministry, he images the rule of God over creation. In his sacrificial death, he images the mercy and grace of God. So Jesus has just summarized everything he's already said from 517 until this verse in 712. He's collected it all together and says effectively, this is what I'm talking about. The whole issue of the law and the prophets, the whole issue about the kingdom of God, the whole issue about being a citizen in the kingdom, the whole issue about how to walk as members of the kingdom, how to relate to one another, how to relate to God, everything about the kingdom is summed up in this, that we are to be loving one another with God's kind of love as we have been loved by God. That's the summation of it all. That was a message at Sinai. That was a message in Genesis. That's the message of the cross. It's the message of Revelation. It's God's message because the Bible says in 1 John 4.10, for God is love. So we continue now. And Jesus is going to, if you would, finalize the teaching about the law and the prophets by giving us a little list of two opposing ways of living. He says, now here it is, this is it. Now before I finish my sermon, he says, I want to give you a couple of three examples to make sure you get it, that there are only two opposing ways of living. Now you see, when we talk about this, this grates the world. This is judgmental in their minds. This is narrow-minded and bigoted. You mean to tell me, you mean to tell me that God does it this way? He is not open-minded. <clears throat> he is not understanding to the place that he knows that everybody is weak and struggles in some kind of way. He just gets over it and accepts it and, and brings them all. No, no. We have to see this, and I think we as believers see it. I lead a Bible study once a week at a particular church early in the morning, and we discuss this issue a while back. 
some of the men in the Bible study are believers, some are not. Some of them are more accurately biblical than others. So it's kind of a, a collection of men. They're all churchmen. And, and you can see the, the struggle, the contest in the hearts of those who don't know and have not experienced the grace of God. And even for those maybe who have, who don't understand God himself sufficiently. And so when we say this or we read these, I don't know, brother, if I, I, I understand. I don't know if I agree with what that, you know, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And for the first time, you know, I have always taught in settings where believers are. I've been teaching since I'm 19 years old. And it's always been in the setting of believers, basically. Now, I have preached in other settings at the New Orleans Mission and so on, and they weren't believers. I'm talking about teaching. There's a distinction in my mind. And so it's always been, every once in a while you get somebody who has a disagreement, but basically I think we're all on the same page here, aren't we? We may not understand everything. We may not even, you know, it may rub us, but we know enough to believe and accept the word of God as truth, don't we? We don't get it all. Deuteronomy 29, 29 still needs to be a very important verse in all of us. If you don't know what it means, write it down and look it up. Deuteronomy 29 and 29. And I get rubbed by a lot of things. I don't get it all. I don't understand it all. In fact, I don't understand most of it. What am I saying? All. Heaven's alive. What kind of a comment is that? I don't understand it all. But I do understand this. God has made his truth that I need to know sufficiently clear to me, and I'm not called to understand it as much as first believe it and allow him to begin to progressively give me understanding by the Holy Spirit as I apply myself to the study and application of his word. I mean, I don't even understand fifth grade math anymore. It used to be, Two plus two is four, and two times two is seven. That, we, we learned that in school. <clears throat> I went to school in elementary school in New Orleans. I know these things. What's wrong, Sharice? You look like someone hurt you there. Sharice is still trying to figure out, how is two plus two four? Two times two is seven, isn't it? There are only two ways. As we approach people in the world, there's always that natural tendency to look on the external and evaluate the spiritual condition of a person. Am I right about this? Don't we kind of do that? Now, the evaluation is certainly made by the Holy Spirit, and he may give us some evidences by the practice and the words, et cetera, of the people. But the evaluation is the Holy Spirit. And if I don't know, you know how I pray for someone if I don't know? I see this man here, this older fella here. And I go up to him, hey, Pops, how you doing? Everybody knows Pops. This is John May. Everybody knows John May. His son is Evan May. And, of course, this is his mama, Tammy. I called Tammy one day. She picked up the phone. Hello. I said, 
Tammy, click. <laughs> I called back. I said, Tammy, why did you hang up on me? She said, I didn't know it was you, and I was not going to answer that phone. I said, Tammy, <laughs> boom, it clicked. Remember that? Oh, I said, May, excuse me. Now, men, did you just learn something? We remember it one way. Women are historical. So she didn't say, didn't you say May? She said, you said May. They are historical. Jerry, don't argue with the historicity of your wife. She'll bury you. <laughs> I said, May. She hung up. What am I talking about here? And so I come up to Pops here. I don't know his condition. I don't know whether this guy is spiritual or not. When I say spiritual, Holy Spirit, man or not. So I have to ask God this. Father, would you meet his spiritual need? God knows what I'm asking. If he's saved, minister to him by the Spirit. If he ain't saved, save him. So when you get in these contacts, and I know we're in them regularly, when you don't know what in the world to say because you ain't got a, you know, you don't know who this guy is. Father, minister to Jay's spiritual need. When I've been with Jewish people, and I, you know, I love talking to Jewish people. Oh, God will send me more to talk to. And we've had chit-chat, and there are a couple of them that I, they haven't come to the coffee company lately because the place closed down. We are in another one. I think they know I'm there, so they don't go there anymore. <laughs> but I'm thinking of an older fella, Jewish fella, two older fellas. And we were chit-chatting, you know, about what I'm doing, and, you know. And as I left, I said, you know, let me say this. I pray that the God of Abraham minister to you according to his will. Chris, what else can I say to them? That's a prayer I can pray for them in a good heart, right? I can pray that. There are only two ways. Let me get back to the text. It'd be nice to talk about what Jesus says. There are only two types of people. There are those who hear and obey and are saved, and those who do not hear and obey and are not saved. So let's look at the two types quickly. Two gates, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. So I tell people I'm narrow-minded. For the gate is wide and the, the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. But for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life for those who find it are few. Why is it hard? It is just plain hard for the world to get in there. There's a swallow the story that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. That's hard. It's hard. First group enters heaven by the narrow, the only gate. So John 10, 9 says, or John 10, 7, whichever one you want to read, Jesus says, I am the gate of the sheep, or I am the door. He is the door. The second group is seeking to enter eternal life through another gate. They're going another way. It's hard. That leads to eternal life. Why? Because it's a hard pill to swallow. It's just hard to swallow that. I ain't going that way. I just don't think, I think you're narrow. God can't be this way. He wouldn't do that. What about the two types of fruit? Beware of false prophets. False prophets. And basically, these are the Pharisees and the religious leaders who are teaching false doctrine and who are living falsely, if you would. Specifically, that Jesus is referring to and thinking about, but it goes for anyone who is preaching or teaching falsely or living falsely. 
beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, you know, looking so demure and humble and, you know, and all that. Beware. But inwardly are ravenless wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. And what is the basic fruit? The basic fruit is Galatians 5.22. For the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the fruit. The expression, I'm sorry, the experience of love is joy. The effect of love is peace. And the expression of love are the rest. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And then what I think Paul is doing here, my opinion of that text, is giving us these three categories. The first effect of experiencing the love of God is joy. Then is the effect of the peace of God. We have peace with God. And then because of the joy and the peace of God flooding our hearts, we can begin then to be what? Gentle and kind and patient and forbearing and faithful, etc. Self-control. Those are the expression of experiencing the love of God. Two confessions. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now listen, this is a frightening verse. This is a verse that everybody in the church and every preacher occasionally needs to preach to his congregation. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, what? Many. How many? Many will say this. I think he's talking to church people here. He's not talking to the prostitutes and the thieves and the murderers. Listen to what he says. Many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not what, prophesy in your name? Prophesy, preach the word, spread the word. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? Ministering, ministry, teaching, preaching. And then I would declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity or lawlessness. See, what is the good fruit here? The good fruit is what? He who does the will of my Father. What is the good fruit of a Christian? Obedience to the will and the word of God. We cannot say we love God if we are not loving his will and obeying his commandment as proof of that love for his will. Amen? Love is the, I'm sorry, obedience is the quintessential proof and activity that we have been saved by the love of God and that the love of God is at work in our hearts. Obedience is the quintessential proof, not my feelings. My obedience. Adam was called to obey in order to image God. Jesus came to do the will of my Father in order to redeem the world. Jesus earned in his absolute obedience 
the forgiveness of his people. And that is now given to us as grace. But Jesus is the only man who merited the will, uh, the, the, the favor or the goodness of the activity and the presence of God. He's the only one who merited it. And now his merit that he won in his life and at the cross, his merit has now been placed in us so that in him we merit God's presence and love. Amen? Not on our own, but because we are now associated, connected, spiritually have become one in fellowship with this one who is himself the very merit in his obedience of the will of God. Two foundations. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not be, will be like a man who built and does not help me and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock and the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house. It did not fall for it had been found on the rock. Who is the rock? Christ. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man built his house on the rock, sand. Rains fell, floods came, winds blew, and the house collapsed. And the people stand here and hear this, and his disciples hear this, and they absolutely are taken back. Who is this man? Who is this man who doesn't refer to any other writers except the word of God? Who doesn't go to any other source for the content and the truth of what he's saying, other than to the word of God. And those of you who understand what I'm saying, you know that the rabbis use, okay, okay fine, references. Nothing wrong with that. Jesus goes to the word. And who is this has taken upon himself to teach us this way? And they saw in him, which next week in chapter 8, we'll begin to see worked out. Matthew begins to give us the experiences of it. They saw in him the authority of God the authority of God. Next week, we'll be looking at how that authority plays out in the ministry of Jesus. Thank you.